Amen. Is he as lovely as that every time? Isn't he charming? I always have to start by repenting for having enjoyed that bit so much. <laughs> it's so very generous. I have um, just one verse for you. You don't even have to turn to it because by the time I've read it, you'll have missed it. It's the first verse of Psalm 14. It says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God, the speaker cries. Don't let your thoughts be chained. This universe evolved itself. This world is self-contained. Just then, an urchin in the crowd, a skillful pebble throws, which accurately lands upon his atheistic nose. Who threw that stone, the speaker roars, at which the cockney elf, intuitively keen, retorts, no one, it threw itself. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. We gather together on a Sunday morning, which I've been doing since the day I was that size, unimaginably. We, be, we gather together on a Sunday morning in order to strengthen ourselves in our most holy faith. Partly we come to bear witness that Jesus is alive and to worship him. That's what we do. As we walk along the street, as we come along on the train, as we park our cars, as we come into this place, we bear witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and we come to worship him. And one of the ways we strengthen ourselves, of course, is by worshipping him who is the beginning and the end, the be-all, the end-all, the alpha, the omega, the Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings, Lord of lords, and we love it. Another of the ways that we strengthen ourselves is to talk about what we believe and why. What I sometimes call the tenets of our faith. Those things that we hold fast to. The truths that we treasure. Binding ourselves to the mast of our faith like sailors do on storm-lashed seas. And of course, another way that we do it is to minister to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit as we will do at the end, should you choose using the gifts of the Spirit as he chooses to distribute them, to bless one another, to pray for healing, to set free, to build up, and to encourage. That's why I go to church on a Sunday, and that's why you're packing this place out. It's a wonderful thing. So I wanted to talk this morning, if I might, about the attributes of God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Conveniently, in the first service, we had a baptism, and we all said the creed, and it was up on the screen. So, basically, they played into my hands because it was all I was planning to do anyway. But you just have to believe me. And the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the evening I want to talk about, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And because I haven't been asked back on Monday, then we can't do the Holy Spirit this time. But next time. So, I believe in God, the Father. Everyone believes in something. Jean-Paul Sartre was forced to concede that God does not exist, I cannot doubt. My whole being cries out for a God I cannot deny. Gerald Coates, the idea that God created something out of nothing is admittedly difficult to grasp. But the idea that nothing created something out of nothing is a lot harder. My boys, and I don't know whether this goes over, I think it's quite amusing. My boys love a film called The Big Lebowski, which they made me watch, didn't understand a word of, frankly. However, one of the scenes was of a rather sort of overweight chap on a lilo floating on a swimming pool. And one fellow says to the other one on the side of the pool, that guy's a nihilist. Wow, it looks exhausting. It's very exhausting to believe in nothing. It's very hard to do. 
So I want us to look, if we may, at the attributes of God. Jeremiah 9 and verse 23, which you're all, of course, scribbling down, I can see wildly. So this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man stroke woman, boast in his stroke her wisdom. Or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he stroke she understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Life in the 21st century is very fast, very hectic, very full of, um, like, radio interference. It's terribly hard to hear the Lord and to see the Lord when everything is whizzing around us as it is. It's rather like trying to look up into the night sky through the glare of city lights. And just sometimes we have to stand back and push through the glare to see the magnificence of the sky. And that's what I want to do this morning. Just for a few moments, stand back and look at the magnificence of God the Father. And there are three attributes which will please you. I always think it's worth having a number because you know when you're getting through. Do you know? When I get to number three, you think, oh, she's nearly there. It's just about to land. Number one, he is the Father Almighty. In our first parish, we had a marvelous vicar, and this fellow came to him one morning thinking that he'd made a huge theological discovery. And he said, I don't like to think of God as judge vicar. I like to think of him simply as father. Well, I'm happy to tell you he's both. He's all. He's everything. What we need to know over and above all else is that God loves us. God is love. He breathes love. He encapsulates love. 1 John 4, verse 16, And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. He is the love of the father for the child, described in the Old Testament as one dangling a little one on his knee. We have just seen fatherhood in all its fabulousness. We've just seen this little thing held up. What a high-risk strategy, if I don't mind my saying so. Six days? You must be joking. However, marvelous. I'm hugely impressed. Hugely, hugely impressed. But it's the love of a father for a child. It's a sweet illustration. And what a distortion of the love of the father has been wrought by the devil upon the minds and hearts of men and women. It makes me so mad. And it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be cut off at source, ministered to and set free of. Just because you or I have had a father who wasn't all that he might have been and what father ever was, honestly, except for my husband to my boys. But other than that, who is the perfect father? But to have my view of God as my father slimed by any experience of a less than perfect father of my own is to be so terribly short. And I think my plea to you would be this morning, if there's something in you that feels that that was true of you, It can be dealt with, it can be prayed for, it can be released from, even before you go back out of those doors this morning. I grew up in an incredibly happy home, parents and one little sister. We lived in the country just outside London, and my childhood, as I understood it, was blissful. And it only turned out later that I discovered the great secret in our family, which was that my father was an alcoholic. And I don't know what you know about the nature of these things, but a family of an alcoholic sticks together very close. We were incredibly close. We were very loyal. We were conspiratorial. We weren't allowed to speak to anybody, and nor did we choose to. The first person I ever spoke to on the subject was John when we first fell in love. I never had to anybody else, ever. 
And he, my father was a wonderful man. He was godly. He was faithful. He was an elder in the Church of Scotland. He was a fine, sweet person with major shortcomings. And I cannot allow my love for the Father and my understanding of his love for me to be in any way distorted by a father who had his weaknesses. Bishop Sanderson said, Labor to have thy heart thoroughly persuaded of the goodness of God towards thee. Tozer wrote, I have found God to be cordial and generous and in every way easy to live with. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. I'm going to do it again. I have found God to be cordial and generous and in every way easy to live with. Amen and amen. A story is once told of a little girl who lived in the Midlands with her parents. And she used to play in the garden. And at the bottom of the garden was the main railway line to London. She often used to climb the apple tree that overlooked the railway line. And she would watch the trains going by. But there came a day when she grew up. And when she became a teenager, she said to her parents, I'm sick of you. You hedge me about with what I can't do. I'm fed up with living here. I'm going to be free. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to London. And so she left. And she went down and down and down. She ruined her life physically, mentally, spiritually. And finally, she found herself one night on the embankment, ready to finish it all. But then she decided to try one more thing before she did away with herself. She decided to write to her parents and tell them the whole sordid story. And to say to them, if you will have me back, I will come on the train on such a day that goes past the bottom of the garden. And if you will have me back, she said, will you put a white handkerchief in the window? So she went. And as she drew near, she didn't know whether to look or not. She could hardly bear to look, but she did. And as she did, she approached the garden, and there was the apple tree festooned, covered with sheets, pillowcases, tablecloths, neck curtains, tea towels, everything imaginable. God is love. God loves us unspeakably much, unimaginable how much. And if you hold on to nothing else, hold on to this. He loves you beyond all that you could possibly think, believe, or imagine. He is the Father, but secondly, he is the Father Almighty. Now, I have a sort of top ten of doctrines. I'm not sure it's a terribly sound thing to do, but there are certain doctrines of my faith that are very, very precious to me, although they tend to change around because sometimes it's this and sometimes it's I mean, it's such an amazing faith to which we aspire. It's such a glorious thing God has shown us. But the faith that I I just love to know, that my two doctrines at the moment that are top of my pops, I love to know that he's the judge, and I love to know that he is totally in control, what we call the sovereignty of God. Romans talks about the loving kindness and the severity of God, and I need to be in touch with both. I am grateful to know there are both. His severity has passed over those who have put their trust in Jesus because he took the severity for us when he died on the cross. Extraordinary. And yet, he is a severe God. He is a judge. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I am so comforted 
to know that. I watch and despair over. I look and I weep at the 10 o'clock news. Sometimes it is so intense, I can't look. And it's not just for the football results that I run out of the room. You know, we're big match the day people in my house. But it's just the agony of what we see, the awfulness of what we have to watch, the injustices which we ourselves have to bear, the things that we have to suffer in silence, the things that are not fair and they are not right. But I am comforted to know that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him and he does not miss a trick. He sees it all. And there is a great comfort in it. Queen Anne of France once said to Cardinal Richelieu, she said this, that the law does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. He is God the Father Almighty, and he will judge. But the other thing in Almighty, the other thing in there, of course, is the sovereignty of God. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. <clears throat> you, as Mark generously said, John and I are involved with the vineyard in this country, which is a very young and a relatively small movement of churches, which we consider, of course, very, very precious. But we call ourselves the lunatic fringe of the Christian world, and so we are. But the man who um, God used to found the vineyard was a man called John Wimber, who hailed from California, which we'd never actually heard of until we met him. And uh, anyway, he died, some of us thought at the time, prematurely, but of course God knew all things and was wise, in 1997. And we went to California for his funeral. And it was the first time I'd ever been to a funeral with thousands and thousands of people at it. And it was the first time I'd ever had to look at an open coffin, which was very, very grieving to me because we were very close. And at the beginning of the service, we all had to walk past this coffin. And then as the service began, they closed the lid. And the worship leader sang this song, You are in control. I could sing it. You are in control. And it was such a powerful moment for me. I thought, you know, God, whatever comes or however this thing looks, you are in control. We were recently traveling in the States, and we were taken to a place on, in the mountains, which is called the Continental Divide. This now sort of degenerates into a little geography lesson. But the point is that if a drop of rain... Where two, two drops of water can fall on the continental divide. And depending on being two inches apart, one drop will end up in the Pacific and the other drop will end up in the Atlantic. Extraordinary. However, people are basically faced with two alternative views of life. And depending on those views is where you will land up. Either you believe that God is in control of everything everything that happens, or you say, he's not, it's random, it's chance, there was a big bang, there's been an accident. Depending on the decision that you make at that point, you will land up in one ocean or in the other. And I know for sure where I would choose to be, because I do honestly believe that God is ultimately in control. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century revivalist, said, There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine has very often, he said, appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, 
and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Anne Heseltine Judson said, I am a creature of God, and he has an undoubted right to do with me as it seemeth good in his sight. I rejoice that I'm in his hand, that he is everywhere present and can protect me in one place quite as well as in another. Charles Spurgeon, we are not waifs and strays upon the open sea of fate, but we are steered by God's infinite wisdom towards our desired destination. And this is the killer line. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Providence, sovereignty, is a soft pillow for anxious heads. And who of us is there in this place who is not struggling with some issue or facing some challenge even today? I certainly am for myself. And I have to keep coming back to the truth that God's sovereignty, that God is in control, is a soft pillow for my anxious head. So when a wave hits you, or indeed me, whatever it is, you get some x-rays back and it's a tumor. You get some blood tests back and there's something seriously amiss. You find out that you've been made redundant. You get a letter in the post, an email, or I even heard recently of a text from a young man to call off the engagement to his fiancée. Maybe you've been waiting for ages to have a baby and then you have a miscarriage. Maybe you've never had a child and you struggle with that. Maybe you have enough children and you discover you've got another one on the way and that can be a distress. Maybe you get served with divorce papers. Maybe your teenager is involved with a crowd that you're concerned about. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But you can say, wait a minute, I am going to survive here because God is in control. So there are two alternative views of life, as a friend of mine once described it. Everything falls apart. You turn into your road, you see a huge fire engine, there's a house on fire, it's yours. It's smoking. Do you say like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Or do you assume the persona of Job's jolly wife who said, I knew it was all meaningless and hollow. Christianity is just a prop. It's hopeless. Curse God and die. It's a model for the supportive wife, I've always thought. Dreadful woman. Spurgeon said there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than that of God's sovereignty. We proclaim, he said, an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks fit, without consulting them in the matter. Who is God here? Spurgeon said, it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. And I sometimes think, standing up on my hand legs, what, you know, what would I most love people to hear? What would I most want to say? What, what would people most need to go with? And, you know, I almost think this is the most important thing. God is in control. He is sovereign. And he will do as he will do. So what does it mean to us in our everyday life? It means understanding that the natural world is under the rule of God. God is in the control of nature. Job 26, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Psalm 97, his lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. 
Nature is under the rule of God. The spiritual world is under the rule of God. Every angel, every demon, every power, every authority, every alien force, it's all under the ultimate control of God. Colossians 2 and verse 10, You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. It also means that the whole flow of history is under the rule of God. I used to be a teacher, which comes as a shock to many, and I used to teach history to gals, and I used to love it. And there was one day I was teaching A-level history. This is not in my notes. We're getting a little diverted. Is that right? Not quite to rush second time round. So anyway, um, lunch can wait. Um, I was teaching A-level history to these girls, and I had to ex- Reformation history. I had to explain the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And I took it to be my responsibility as a teacher to explain to them the gospel and what it was that people fought for and what it was that people got burnt for and what it was that people went to the stake for in those days. So I warmed to my theme in this history lesson and suddenly all these little things, well, no, 17, put down their pens and sat there open-mouthed. It's amazing. Looking back, I suppose it was the Spirit of God. I didn't realize it at the time. And this one girl, I'll never forget, she said to me, Madam, which is what they called us, which was sweet, Madam, if what you've just told us is true, why has no one ever told us before? And it's just gone to my heart ever since. This is true, ladies and gentlemen. This is true. This is ultimate. This is it. This is absolute. This is inarguable. And Alpha, you can go and find out more about it. You know, just to see, if you forgive me being embarrassing, if you see this girl whose life has been totally transformed because she's discovered that it's true. Wonderful, wonderful thing. The whole flow of history is his story. He is in control. And it's a marvelous thing. Daniel chapter 2, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. And I have to believe it's true. God rules over everything. And yet you say, well, isn't Satan the ruler of this world? Yes. It's not hard to see the hand of Satan when someone is tragically struck down for some reason, when a child dies, when a missionary couple of whom I heard recently is martyred, when you get falsely accused for something that you didn't do, when you get discriminated against work because they know you believe. But ultimately, the enemy can hurt us, he can abuse us, he can malign us, people can misunderstand us, but over it all, there is a God who is good and who loves us. And that's where the people of the scriptures have to reverse up to. They know that God is over all. What God's control does not mean is that I understand everything. It's okay not to understand. It's all right to be perplexed. The people of God are frequently perplexed. Paul said, I'm going through so much, I don't even know how to pray. I can only groan. There are things and issues going on in my life at the moment. I just say, God, I just don't even know how to put words to this, and I can only groan. But God knows all that. But we do know one thing, and we have to hold on to it, that ultimately all things do work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you know him and if you love him, that's you. Romans 8, 28. That's the one. That's the one. My children were never allowed to write on their hands. I was a terribly bossy mother. We had no writing on hands, boys. But on this occasion, if you want to write that down, Romans 8, 28. 
We don't know everything, but we do know this one thing, that all things will work together for good. And nor is it to say that there isn't more than one purpose involved in many of life's circumstances. Sometimes the circumstances we find ourselves under have two intentions, two genders, if you like. Satan really wants to try and mess us up. And there are truly evil people who will maliciously try to ruin you. However, right alongside that, God is always at work, redeeming, using, making the best of, doing something we couldn't even have imagined. Take Joseph, one of my heroes in the Old Testament. He was absolutely hated by his brothers. There is no denying it. He couldn't sit at the bottom of the pit into which they'd thrown him and said, I claim that they like me. No, they don't. They hate you, Joseph. They loathe your guts. They wish you were dead, but they'll get more money for your lives than dead. I mean, let's be real here. He was sold into slavery. He resisted its seduction. He was falsely accused of attempted rape. He was jailed, and then he was forgotten in jail. So did he survey his life and say, my life has just been an endless string of unbroken tragedy? No. Genesis 50. He said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many, many lives. One of the um, early founders, I suppose, of the vineyard movement, a very good friend of, of Wimber's, was a man called Brent Rue, who was a wonderful vineyard pastor. And he died very young, and many of us thought at the time, tragically prematurely, of cancer. But before he did, he wrote this. He said, when I was lying in bed in intensive care, I thought to myself, if God wants me in heaven, there's nothing I can do to stop him. I'm out of here. But if he wants me here for another 30 years, there's nothing that's going to stop that either. If my experience offers a lesson, he said, it's this. Surrender to God. That's all he wants. And don't try to make sense out of everything. So we are faced with our choice, if you like, our continental divide. Either we can live life based on how much of life we can control, or we can understand and live a life based on how much trust we have in the control of God, the Father Almighty. He's the Father, he's almighty, and thirdly, and very briefly you'll be happy to hear, he is the creator of heaven and earth. There was a French scientist once working in the desert, and he had an Arab guide. And when the guide knelt down to pray, as was his wont, the scientist was derisory. Can you see God, or touch God, or hear God, he said to the man. The next morning before dawn, as they got up, the scientist remarks, Ha! Ah, a camel's been here in the night. Did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you hear it? inquired the Arab. No, but here are its footprints, said the scientist. And just then the sun rose with all its oriental splendor. Behold the footprints of the creator, said the guide. If you go into St. Paul's Cathedral, which was, of course, immediately what came to mind as I walked into here this morning, given it was St. Paul's, if you go into St. Paul's Cathedral, you will find a very simple memorial stone commemorating its architect, Sir Christopher Wren. And I'm not sure you know it. It simply says, if you seek his monument, look around you. If you seek the Lord's monument, if you seek evidence of his creativity, if you want to see the beauty, if you want to see the creativity, the loveliness, the satisfaction to your soul, look around you. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim 
the work of his hands. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16, the most, I think, you'll forgive me saying so, hilarious throwaway line in the scriptures. He made the stars also. Just, you know, I might as well make the stars. Amazing. And speaking of throwaway lines, it was said that once Napoleon was sailing the Mediterranean in a ship with his officers, and they were talking together after dinner. And in the talk, all the officers eliminated the presence or the reality of God. Napoleon had been uncharacteristically silent, but now he lifted his hand and he pointed to the sea in the sky. Gentlemen, he said, who made all this? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll pray.